Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here to my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. I have come back from my travels, whole and unhurt, Michael, and we are back into this. Well, I hope you had a lovely time in the United States and you took the opportunity to bring them the depth and wealth and richness of European political culture and they appreciated it and we're glad and grateful. Yes, I mean, American politics is, is too often positive and we really need to show them the depths of despair that European conservative and libertarian movements have managed to reach. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciated that Nietzschean or Kierkegaardian take on this. That, you know, Lads, we bring you a sense of the abyss. Enjoy! I like to think of it as a, sort of a memento mori. Well, what did you find? What did you think of it? Was it uh, fascinating? Dull? Boring? Interesting? I've done it before. So for, for listeners who aren't aware, the EBI brought a, a number of students over to student conference over in America. It's involved with the Republican Party. Although, actually, I think they would say they're non-partisan. Just you know, they're just pro-freedom. And I've gone to it before, but I always find it interesting to bring over Irish students because Americans are quite culturally distinct from Europeans. And we don't tend to realise it because we're also immersed in American culture. But the parts of American culture that we're immersed in tend to be the, the most similar to um, Europe. And the Democrats tend to be culturally more similar to Europeans than the Republicans. The Republicans are quite distinct in what they believe and how they believe leave it. So it's always interesting to bring over students who have some sort of familiarity with America to go to an event like this and see how the Republicans actually think and what they think is important and why they think it's important. There are all sorts of historical cultural differences that we somehow miss. I, I, I blame language. I think if you go to a country and they're speaking a foreign language, you just assume that they're going to be interesting and fundamental cultural differences because the language is that signal which says different place. And I, I have never been to the United States, but I've had many American friends. And after a while, when you get to know them well, you start to pick up, oh, that's interesting. They, that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about it. And we, I think that for most people, if you haven't been to the States, you have an experience with, say, between simply England and Ireland. A lot of English people who come to Ireland and vice versa. You come here, I, I know from talking to friends, English friends who live here, and for the beginning you kind of think, oh, well, it's, it's a kind of a cute version of England with a slight, a different accent and a slightly different looking place. And then something happens and something hits, and they say, this is a foreign country. And same thing when you go to England. You, there's something will happen, you think, oh, this is not just a bigger, more urban version of Ireland with odd accents. It's actually a foreign country. Like, that's probably true of all the Anglophones places. Everybody has their own particular individual culture but I think it was George Bernard Shaw wasn't it two nations separated by a common language a language and I think that's true that, that, that there's a truth in that 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 common language powers the cultural difference I, for example, if, particularly if you're talking to Republicans or conservative Americans, the the ease or the natural cultural assumption they have about people being religious mm. and the references to prayer and to God that are woven through so that even if you talk to other to European conservatives like say for example in Italy I mean there are there's a substantial Catholic Christian presence in the cultural and political life of Italy but they know that the person that they're talking to may well not have that cultural background unless they have other cultural clues that tell them that you oh yeah you're from you're coming from a church background or DC background whatever it is but the Americans have this it's it, it's much more even though the United States is becoming particularly in the last 10 years, the figures have shown an acceleration in the decline of religious religiosity, particularly amongst younger people. It still is a much more publicly, obviously, religious culture than pretty well anywhere in Europe. Now, the, in Western Europe, anyway, since the decline of the Irish uh, church. I think on, on the matter of faith, you're right that it's partially that just 
because the country is a more uh, religious country, that there's more widespread faith. And faith of a type I don't think Europeans really understand anymore. But it's also very different than European faith. Like a religious person in America is different than a religious person in Europe. The Americans tend to be far more sort of evangelical about it, and they put far more of a, an emphasis on faith being like a core part of both your private and civic life. It's also interesting to see just how big of a tent the, the Republicans are. So you'll have from the, you know, exceptionally religious, uh, very Protestant, not terribly fond of Catholics, all the way through to basically Catholic theologians, and then it will keep going into more secular Republicans. Um, but on things like guns, on foreign trade, on defense, on really anything, there is a massive amount of debate internally in the Republicans. Guns, actually, there's, that's, that's, a, that's a really good example of that, that escaped me. Guns. The American, shall we say, particularly the conservative or Republican attitude to the ownership of weapons, firearms, to many Europeans just seems bizarre. Actually, it was something one of the students mentioned when we, we were over there, that they had heard all of these things, these things reported about what Republicans wanted, but it's never really explained why they want them or that there are legitimate reasons behind them. And I think the gun thing is an interesting one because, yes, the Republicans are very big into firearms as a tool of self-defense. But they're also very big in that you should have guns in case you need to overthrow the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they legitimately believe that that is a safeguard against tyranny. And I think that's partially due to the very unique history of America. The degree to which the Republicans, particularly, uh, well, most of them, are focused on principles rather than exact policy choices is quite interesting. They're like, well, we just need them to overthrow the government. That is the principle we'll die on, so you're going to need to find a way around that because uh, we will not move. There's two things there, I suppose. First of all, yeah, we, for, the United States is born out of an, uh, an articulation of the belief that the people have the right to overthrow their government if their government has become tyrannical. And out of that belief, the, the citizens shall have the right to bear arms. So first, the, the, there's a guarantee that the citizenry can bear arms, so they have a militia in order to oppose the power of the state. The, the United States is not a democracy. It's deliberately conceived as not, not as a democracy, but as a republic. And it's constructed in such a way as to mediate against the arbitrary use of power. And that also that, that power cannot be located in just one place. It can't be located just in the presidency or just in the legislature or just in the judiciary. The power is diffuse because the framers of the American state and the American constitution have, in a way, it's a balanced, there's an element of pessimism. They don't necessarily trust, they don't trust people, individuals, certainly, and they don't trust the mass. So they diffuse power. And one of the things they say is, just in case everybody loses the plot a bit, then the citizens shall have the right to overthrow the government. And rather than make sure that, as it happened, would have been the case in Europe, where you, the army was in the, the maw either of parliament or of the king, that the citizen will have access to weapons in order to do it. The other thing is, I think you're talking about the, the principle is, even if they're not that worried about the necessity to overthrow a tyrannical government, although that's always there, it's not even about guns for them. It's about the Constitution. And the Constitution says this. 
And we shouldn't be fucking around with the Constitution. We shouldn't be undermining the document, which is the founding document of the Republic. So it's not even so much a defense of guns for some of them. It's a defense of the Constitution in the sense that without the Constitution, it's just it's either government by fiat from Congress or from the bench by judges inventing law as they go along. Yeah, I mean, I, I met many Republicans who don't like guns, but would have that approach to it of, well, it's in the Constitution, so, you know, we've got to defend it. It's also interesting just to see the general quality of their politicians. I don't think there is a single politician in Ireland that I can think of who would be able to meet the general standard of not even just the best politicians in America, just those who were above average. Like, the level of polish they have and training, but also the amount they know about their areas is significantly above what we're used to in Ireland. And you kind of get the sense that if the Americans could kind of get to be of one mind on something, you can really see how they managed to become a superpower. Like, they are very good. Now, the last while, they've mostly been tearing each other apart, but presuming that gets sorted out at some point, there are a few things I would put beyond the Americans. A couple of American pol- professional American politicians that I, I've met or the thing that struck me about them was their level of preparedness on their brief. Mm. And it, what you could tell, these were not people who had been given a set of talking points and told this is true, this is true, that they actually had sat down, they had genuinely understood or digested to a degree. I mean, obviously, these things are what they were actually they were talking about in a way that I had not really encountered in very many politicians in Europe, and certainly in Ireland. They were very, very impressive in their understanding of what they were talking about, and their capacity to answer questions, which is obviously, and to respond to a, a little a, a degree of interrogation, which is the, obviously the test of the degree to which you have really understood or absorbed your brief. Yeah, I think part of that is just the sheer numbers game, that there are just so many more people in America that there's basically a larger talent pool to select from. But I think it's also the amount of focus they place on the Constitution and on ideas. So they tend to be very good on the Constitution, and because they have an interest in ideas, they tend to at least be able to understand and articulate them. Yeah, and listen, obviously we're talking about a massively bigger population and a very rich country. But if you look at the number of think tanks in in the United States, and particularly from our perspective, if you look at the number of, say, center, center right, right wing think tanks, which are, it's just a, a commonplace that people will fund them because in the United States, people who are on the, the center right understand that, okay, you, you, you fund hospitals and you fund schools and research into disease and all that, but you also think that it's a worthwhile thing to fund ideas, which is almost completely absent from the political sensibility of the right in Ireland. Well, most of Europe, I would say. Uh, but that is the interesting thing about America's history, that, you know, the old saying that America is the only country ever founded on an ideology rather than heritage. Yeah, the United States is an idea rather than an, eth- an ethnicity. It is weirdly a nation. You get this very strong sense that they have an idea of being a nation, but it's not a nation based on ethnicity or group, but rather on all of these people participating in an idea. Yeah, I think those, those are other things that generally come across in reporting on the American right. And partially that is because the uh, people we have historically sent to report on the American right have not been fond of it and have had no real interest in understanding it. 
But there are certain things about, let's say, their policies at the federal level uh, that don't make sense if you don't realize how strongly a lot of these people believe that power should be with the states to the greatest extent possible. And in relation to some of their immigration policies, they don't really make sense if you don't understand the depth of the belief in civic nationalism in the Republican Party. And it's not really about immigration as such. It's about a feeling that civic institutions are being undermined and the people have lost control of the immigration policy, which are not the same thing. We have no sense here of the United States as a federal uh, nation at all. We don't really, I suppose the Germans do federalism to a degree, but other than that, real federalism in Europe is kind of a strange animal. And we, in, in Ireland, we certainly just don't get the idea that people from Iowa or Indiana or California really do value that sense of having their own government and their own legislature and their own constitution and doing their things. There's a certain, there's obviously a pooling of sovereignty, but after that, there is a real difference. However, we're talking about high-quality politicians, Gary, and high-quality thinking. Uh, I suppose if we're looking for one of the most brilliant and high-quality uh, examples of ministers in Ireland, the first name that would come to mind is Stephen Donnelly. And I know that you had some observations about one of Stephen's big ideas. Yes, yeah, so Mr. Donnelly was kind enough to write a, a piece in the journal about they will be bringing in exclusion zones uh, shortly, and those will put a zone around every GP, uh, hospital, uh, family planning clinic, and well woman clinic in the country of 100 metres, which uh, you won't be able to uh, protest or advocate or do a whole host of things inside. Now, we're still waiting for the heads of the bill, but he was kind enough to come out and give a general idea of what would be in it. Now, there's the topic of the bill, and, and I think, frankly, it's an assault on free speech, and I'd be very interested on how they're going to make this thing constitutional. I have an idea of how they'll try and do it, but I'm not sure they'll, they'll get it true on that. But let's put that to one side, Michael, because that, that is what it is. Now, when I had seen all of the reporting on this in other papers, they had quoted a study saying that, I think it was uh, one in seven women who had gone... Um, into, you know, GP's clinic or thing like that to access abortion services had encountered uh, anti-abortion activity, which the journal helpfully uh, headlines as harassment. Harassment is the word that has been used consistently. So I saw this in the Irish Times and a couple of other places, and it said this study. Nowhere gave its name, nowhere said where it came from, but Stephen Donnelly in the journal well, his piece in the journal, I don't know if he had any involvement with this, was kind enough to link to it. Now, Michael. Yeah? You are, you know, the Minister for Health. You're bringing this in. You presumably have access to the top tiers of research on this. Mm-hmm. The study he, he is referencing comes from the Abortion Rights Campaign. Okay. Now, immediately, the Abortion Rights Campaign is an activist group in this area. That's not to say they can't do good research. They can do very good research. It just means that everything they say is slightly more suspect than if it was said by a neutral party because there's more likelihood of bias coming in. Mm. But here's the thing. When you go into it and you look at the methodology, what you realise very quickly is that this survey was an online survey promoted through social media and shared with various other pro-choice groups. There were 402 respondents, but it was a online survey promoted through social media with no apparent verification. So 
It was done uh, in pro-choice, pro-abortion loci. It was a self-selecting sample, and there was no form of verification that you could see. So far, it's not sounding like what you'd call gold standard research. No, this this would not be considered research of any particular quality. So of the 400-odd responses, what was the breakdown? One-seventh of them reported activity, is that it, or what? That, that was it, yeah. And how is activity defined, or described, or is it? It basically just means that they ran into or saw someone. There's no particular thing, there's no request of harassment or things like that. So one-seventh of a sample of 400, which was a self-selecting sample, said that they came across something, which was that. It's not undersell it, but it's not sounding... It's not sounding like a massively solid base on which to build laws which were going to be a fairly severe impairment of the right uh, to protest, the right to free speech and the right for public assembly, you know? You'd like you'd like, you'd like, like to think there might be a little, little bit more than that to it. Well, I, I suppose I would point out here, Michael, that the, um, the sample size of people who said they ran into anti-abortion activity of any type was 22 people. And they ran. So, for example, if this was two ladies praying silently on the, on the pavement, that might have constituted one of those 22 responses. Oh, no, it would have, absolutely. Right. Well, down with that kind of thing, Gary. You don't want that kind of thing going around. So, as I said, we, we put the, the issue of exclusion zones to one side. The issue here is that this is not high-quality research. It's not very good research at all. And yet, it is what the Minister of Health has chosen to highlight while putting forward this case. Because, you know, Michael, numbers aren't real and no one really cares. Didn't the Gardaí make an observation about the problematic or otherwise pro- or non-problematic nature of this kind of protest going on? As in harassment, as in they weren't aware of any and didn't and didn't re- and there are and there are already laws on the statute yeah well that, that was the view of the Garda commissioner that existing laws and harassment were were capable of handling any issue the problem there of course is that the government wants to stop all protests regardless of whether or not they are harassing and obviously a law on harassment would not allow you to do that so yeah you expand not to sound overly naive but in a democratic country, to say, listen, we, we're not just interested in harassment. We're interested in, in banning all forms of protest around this subject. And that's what we need this law for. It doesn't really sound very high-minded or indeed very dem- democratic. However, I don't doubt that they will find support within Fianna Fáil Fine Gael for this. Uh, they'll all dutifully go through the lobbies because God knows... We're talking about you know the dedication to the things like ideas and ideals and principles being part of American politics, but God no, that ain't part of our politics. We're not infected by any of that nonsense. Actually, here's a, an interesting thing, Michael, about the survey that you might not know. When they said that there was a, a sample size that, that overall there's a sample size of four hundred and two, that counts everyone who started the study. Oh, right. So of that. The, the amount of people who totally completed the study, Michael? Yeah. 36. No. 36 completions. 400-odd people started it. And of those... So, 
Sorry, how many people started? 400 and what? 402. So 402, so that's 433. So that's six. That's 364 couldn't be arsed to finish it. Well, that, here's the thing. And when they say completion, they their definition is a respondent who answered all questions relevant to them. Not all questions. Right. So depending on how you define all questions relevant to them, yeah. your actual completion rate could be... Um, Low, Michael. Well, I mean, you've already got a completion rate of under 10%. So you put you, you put this thing out, you remove the verification from it, you put it out through social media, which is likely to give you a biased response, and you still can't get a 10% completion rate. Do you have any notion just from memory of what kind of completion rate you'd be hoping for or anything like this? I'm guessing more than 10%. I, no, absolutely. I mean, if you... Uh, survey design is, is rather an intricate thing. But if you create a survey which only 10% of people complete, you have fucked up. <laughs> yeah, not great. So completion rate is always going to depend on, you know, how interested people are, how difficult it is to access the survey, if it's going to professionals, if it's open to the public. Basically, the easier you make it and the, the broader it is, the more likely you are to have people kind of click into it and have a look at it. So what you have here is 402 people open the survey, basically. And if you open the survey, you're counted as an N. Of that, 231 people filled out less than 50% of it. Right. Okay. And then it starts falling and, you know, full completion is obviously 36 people. So, again, putting aside the, the, the exclusion zone thing, we're looking at a law which is, even if constitutional, will basically get through by saying we are restricting a constitutional right in order to protect another constitutional right. And your Minister for Health decides that he is going to use as evidence that this needs to be done a, what I think, year-old survey from an advocacy group which only 36 people bothered to finish. It's not great. Like. You know, no. And normally, if you are going to restrict an important constitutional right and the right to free speech, the right to assemble, the right to protest, they would be considered to be important constitutional uh, rights, important protected uh, uh, behaviours. The court would usually want to show that there were significant reasons that there was there was a, a, a real harm being done to other rights before we could restrict these in ways no, more than we would normally, then that is already, I mean, that these rights are already constrained, Gary. It's not that these rights are untrammeled in Irish life. You can just go out and protest anywhere at any time in any manner that you want, that you can't. There are already, there are already significant restrictions on that. There are also harassment laws already on the books. So the court would usually expect, if you're going to restrict these rights further, in citizens' rights, important political rights, that there has to, you're going to have to show that there is not just the risk, but more than the risk of substantial harm being done. If this was the evidence that they were going to put before the Supreme Court to show that this was what was happening, I I would hope that the court's response would be, I'm sorry, this does not really reach the threshold that we require before we're going to start limiting citizens' rights to free speech and to assemble. Now, neither you nor I, Gary, have the capacity to look into the hearts of the members of the Supreme Court, but yet hope 
This really, this is weak, weak stuff. Well, I mean, Michael, I, I do have to open the possibility that I myself am over 10% of all the people counted in this survey. Did you look, because you opened the survey? I, I went through this survey multiple times. <laughs> I would say probably about 15 times. Uh, so I'm, I may actually be over 10% of this survey sample. You may actually be a statistically important part of that sample. Yeah, I mean, if it counted all of them individually and they weren't doing anything, uh, you know, only t- tying it to one per IP address, and even if they were, I probably got at least three in. So if and when this legislation comes in, we can blame you. Oh, yeah, just put my photo right up there. Couldn't have done it without him. Larry Kavanagh killed democracy in Ireland. Well, I didn't realise that they were going to be like, well, 400 people clicked this link. I'm like, that's not very impressive. Because it, it goes from, you know, 400 people did this survey to 400 people clicked a link and may have gone to page two. Wait, one thing we can say with certainty is you were the one that pushed, you certainly pushed them over the 400. I, it does appear that that's probably likely, yeah. 400 does sound better than 300 something. Much better, but it does sound better. Well, it's good that we've agreed this is my fault. Well, I, I think that that's... Okay, let's say it's partially your fault. Partially your fault, partially Stephen Donnelly's fault. Michael, who knows the things that Stephen Donnelly knows? Oh, I think we could speculate on the things that he knows. I think it's a short list, Gary, a very short list indeed. I think this is one of the, the reasons, Michael, why I spend so much time going through terrible research in Ireland and just pointing out that it's terrible research. Because you look at something and you go, well, this is too shoddy to go anywhere. And then, boom, suddenly a minister is like, well, we've got to put this law in because of this terrible, terrible study, which I strongly suspect Stephen Donnelly has never read. You see, you leave these people alone for a second without explicitly telling them that something is terrible. And they just believe anything you tell them. It's like when we were over in America, I had to tell the students not to lie to the Americans because they would believe you regardless of what you said. One of the students told a group of Americans that he was the great, great, great grandson of Edmund Burke and they believed him. (laughs) And then when he tried, because I I was like, stop that now. And then he told them actually he had been joking and the response was, or are you joking now? I was like, you see what you've done? You see how confused you've made them. I remember on one occasion being at a, a ceremony where a some prominent Irish Americans were being rewarded for some fine philanthropic activity in this island. And the, I can't remember, the lady, the lady wife of the principal philanthropist also got what was called, it was, I think it was made up for the purposes of St. Patrick's Medal. And she inquired of the dignitary that was giving her the medal, whether or not St. Patrick had actually worn the medal. The look of embarrassment and discomfort and, oh God, what do I say now on that man's face was an absolute joy to see. I wasn't 100% sure that she wasn't fucking around with them either, but there you go, that's another possibility. I know, the thing The thing about the Americans is that they have, there's not an ounce of cynicism in them. And you can kind of see why they, why, like, they're so good at starting businesses. Because you tell them something and tell them it's possible they're like, yes, absolutely, no, it is, and then they'll try and do it, and occasionally it might be possible. I, I, people used to, people always used to say that the Americans had no irony. Irony was this European. I never thought that was true. I think anybody who watches American comedy would see that there's a. Now I know Norm Macdonald, our our favourite, uh, was Canadian, and maybe that had to affect Norm certainly and the people around him, and but his audience were American, and Norm enjoyed more than a degree of irony. That New York comedy, that New York sensibility, there's 
Maybe not cynicism. Maybe cynicism isn't skepticism, perhaps, but not cynicism in the same way. Cynicism is bad, Gary, anyway. It really is. There's no upside to cynicism. So I am, um, I'm just looking at this survey uh, now, Michael, because I, I forgot I saved a copy of it. And it says at the top, you can take this survey if you've gotten an abortion in Ireland since 2nd January 2019. You've tried to get an abortion in Ireland since 2nd January 2019. There are no controls on that. It's just a sign. And then it says the survey is anonymous, does not ask for your name or any other information that could identify who you are and your IP address cannot be tracked. That's the next point. Now, here's the thing about this. When you're doing a study into something that is, you know, personal or traumatic or something of that nature, Michael, there is a strong argument that the information should be anonymous, that you shouldn't attach names to it, things like that. However, what generally happens with surveys like this, and I don't know if it's because they don't know better or because they're deliberately trying to get certain results, is this. You tell people that their information will not be released and will in anything outwardly facing be anonymous, but you collect the information for your own verification purposes. So basically you say, look, we're not going to tell anyone your name, we're not going to do anything like that, but we need to get these details in case we need to contact you to confirm this material in some way. That's all you do. You get the same end result, but you can actually verify it. This entire thing is totally unverifiable. Like You're looking at some of the quotes in it from people, and I don't think they're real. I don't think some of them are real. Some of them might be. We can absolutely see them being real. But other ones, and probably the more extreme ones, don't feel real to me. Now, I could be wrong in that. That could be my own biases. But if you're certain that what you're getting is real and you're secure in that, why would you not put in the basic security checks in order to be able to verify it? Yeah, it's it's a reasonable question. Can I, you're talking about pieces of research. There's a couple of little pieces of research that have come out of Scotland, Gary, which I'd like to share with the listener. But not so much, because the research seems to be perfectly reasonable in this case. There's statistics uh, put together and put out by the National Records uh, of Scotland and perfectly well done professionally. But I think you may enjoy the conclusions that were drawn from this research by politicians. This this is more research on um, on minimum unit pricing in Scotland, is it? You 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 are absolutely right. I am amazed that you guessed that I should be interested in that subject. But yes, in the last three months, four months, I think there's been four major pieces of research into it, and. Each one has been damaging in a new way to it. You would imagine that, but that you'd be wrong, Gary. You'd be wrong, apparently. Okay, last year, Scotland, with the minimum, last year at minimum unit alcohol pricing, recorded the highest number of alcohol-related deaths in 13 years. 1,245 people died last year, prompting calls for urgent action. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you should, uh, we should, uh, da, 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 da. It is essential, this was the response of the chair of SHAAP, which is what the anti-drink charities, must increase funding and resources for alcohol services to insurers. But it is also essential that the population-wide policies, such as minute-unit pricing, remain in place to mitigate alcohol-related harms. Um, also, we are told... The the introduction of minimum unit alcohol pricing has helped to reduce alcohol sales to their lowest on record. 
Now, Gary, what would you guess my observation would be about the reduction of alcohol to the lowest on record? Well, I imagine, Michael, you might refer to the previous studies that have come out recently saying that minimum unit pricing did have an impact on the people who drink least and that there are a large amount of those people in any society and that that would be part of the drive. I think you then might also refer to the studies that said that alcohol consumption amongst you know, the heaviest alcoholics or the heaviest drinkers has gone up. And then you would perhaps refer to the studies that indicate that there has been a transference um, and that people are now crossing the border into England to buy alcohol, at least in the border counties. And then I think you might research to the uh, you might refer to the other piece of research indicating that there, there has been a substitution for drugs. I think all of that would be, be very good points to make. But the last point I, I would make, Gary, is the fact that we have absolutely no reason to believe that minimum unit alcohol pricing globally has actually had any effect on the decline in alcohol consumption, really, in that we don't know that because there has been a secular decline over the last number of years, many years in Scotland, in alcohol consumption anyway, much like in Ireland. For the last 20 years, year on year, alcohol consumption has been in decline. Now, Michael, I seem to recall, actually, that when the Scottish brought in minimum unit pricing, that the year afterwards, alcohol actually decreased less than it had the year previous to them bringing in minimum unit pricing. But that didn't really get thrown around. Instead, it was, MUP has caused this. Well, I'd say two things. First of all, when this was introduced, and we commented on it, and we predicted that there would be a decline in alcohol because that was the trend, and it seemed like a pretty strong trend. And the Scottish trend had started later than in Ireland, but it was seen to be going the same direction. Now, by the way, public health in Scotland and Ireland are very different. If you're looking at deaths related to alcohol and to drugs and heart disease and all sorts of things, Scotland has serious, serious health, public health issues, much more so than, than, than we do. But we did say there will be a decline, and they will say it was caused by MUP. And lo and behold, it was. Now, I would also say that, to be let, let's be reasonable and fair here, yes, there was an estimated 5% increase in the consumption of alcohol by heavy drinkers. I think we have to remember that this is happening in the context of COVID and a lockdown, and it's not surprising that you're going to get maybe unusual figures for people who have an alcohol or any kind of dependency issue when they are becoming more socially isolated and they're under greater degrees of stress. But, you know, you mentioned something about crossover there, Gary. Um, here's a quote from Annie Marie Ward, founder of Faces and Voices of Recovery UK, a drug and alcohol charity, said, their fears people would switch to drugs had been borne out. If you can buy street Valium at 20p a pill and the price of super strength alcohol is more expensive and has risen, you will take the cheapest route to oblivion. Now, Michael, I'm not a man who generally tires of, of being right about things, particularly when people were very, very strong that I would be wrong. But in this particular instance, this flurry of research, I think it has been about four major papers, and each one has come out looking at a different impact, like the switch to stronger alcohol, that people who were um, living with alcoholics were concerned that there would be an increase in domestic violence because of these changes, that there had been a movement to drugs, that there was cross-border trade, that you you know you were seeing no fall in those presenting to A&E and addiction services, uh, with issues related to, to alcohol. Just 
shot after shot after shot. And Michael, at this point, even I am becoming tired of going, if only someone could have known that would have happened. If only. I mean, geez, honest to God, this, some of this stuff is just horrific. In Scotland, uh, 1,330 people died from drugs in 2021, which is nine fewer than the previous year, but four times the rate in England. However, there was a large rise in deaths involving benzodiazepines or benzos. Um, the, and the David Little, the chief executive uh, of the Scottish Drugs Forum, said that they believe, their, their belief is that young people have been driven to make use of cheap street drugs. Quoting here, he said, some people may have been likely to have been drinking cheap ciders, now seem to be using street, so-called street Valium. Our concern is that using street drugs is inherently dangerous, and if people are using them in combination with alcohol, the risk is raised again. I just want to read you the last sentence. This is a, an article written in the Sunday Times, right? Just uh, one sentence, and put this in the context of a, an action which was a, designed to improve issues around uh, public health. Last month, the Scottish government's health body, Public Health Scotland, found that minimum unit alcohol pricing had led problem drinkers to sacrifice heating and eating to pay for alcohol. Yes, I, I remember that one. And the um, the greater use of food banks. Yes, 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 yes. Um, on a totally unrelated note, Michael, anytime I go to the Department of Health or the Department of Justice about minimum unit pricing with one of these studies and go, did you consider this? They just don't answer. Really? Yeah. Oh, that surprises me. However... Oh, actually, on people not, and this is just a bit of an aside, on people not responding. You know, I was talking before about like the, the increase in recorded rapes and sexual offences and how everyone is just assuming this is because, uh, I believe the phrasing is, victims trust the reporting process more. Yes. I reached out to the guards about this. Um, I well, I reached out to a lot of people about it. But the guards are particularly funny, and I don't think I've mentioned this before. When I asked them about it and the evidentiary backing behind it, because, you know, the Garda Commissioner has made repeated statements on it, and also in most of the reports that he releases, which go into the crime stats, it's brought up every time. So I said, you know, what is the evidentiary backing for saying that these increases cannot be attributed to an increase in crime, but rather increases in reporting? And... Um, <laughs> The Garda Press Office refused to comment. The Garda Press Office refused to comment on a statement by the Garda Commissioner <laughs> that he appears to have made dozens of times. And I had to send back an email going, so just so I'm clear here, you are refusing to comment on a statement by your boss. Uh, basically, yes. Fair enough. I mean, it's just a bit of an odd one of, yeah. We, the police, for a decade have been saying that this is not an increase on crime. Do you have any evidence for that? We're not going to comment on that. That's for us to know and you to find out. I mean, it's not the most reassuring. But maybe we do have evidence. Maybe we don't. If we don't comment, you can't say that we don't, can you? <laughs> You're like, well, you got me there, lads. You do, yeah. That's a slick bit of, that's a slick bit of work there now. Yeah, I mean, the key, the key thing about press offices to remember is that their job is not to send information out their job is to protect the organization and so usually a press office saying something like that could be seen michael as an indication that they actually don't have any evidence for it and we're kind of just hoping no one would ever ask well you could say that i suppose if you were bad-minded 
Mm. Actually, the Department of um, the Department of Justice, when I asked them, kept just sending me plans for the future. And then eventually got to a point where I was like, yes, but do you have any evidence now or is what you are saying just supposition? And then they just did not respond. Ships passing in the night. I suppose before we go, we should just very quickly comment on the Independent has the uh, has a, an opinion poll, which is absolutely boring, except for, well, we I, possibly one thing, but... Did I suppose you saw this, Gary? Uh, Sinn Fein are down one to thirty-five. I mean, they are so solid on that number now. Yeah, I mean, I I saw the political polling, and to be honest, there's not much movement on it. I mean, Finnafall is slightly up. Labour down one, so there's the Ivana Batch. The Ivana bounce is over, I suppose. What I thought was particularly interesting is. Uh, some of the other polling they did. So I'm going to make just a general statement here, Michael, uh, about polling. You shouldn't ask the public detailed policy questions because most of the time the public have no fucking idea what's happening. Like they polled on um, agricultural uh, emission targets. Like, what do you think about them? Oh, it's too high. Like, you don't have a fucking idea what you're talking about. Where they are, where you can poll and actually get useful information is less about what you what the public say they think or what they want. It's things they have noticed and things they have done. So, for instance, have you noticed a significant increase in the cost of any of the following for you in the past six months? 94% food and groceries, 86% electricity, 81% transport costs, home heating, 75%. Pretty much every option offered has at least 15% of people, well, actually all of the options, offered have at least 15% of people saying they've seen a significant increase in the cost. Now that doesn't strike me as terribly helpful to the government. Historically people having less money and spending more money on buying things is bad for the government and that's probably a bit of a bombshell for the listeners out there but I can tell you with my deep understanding of politics that's that is actually historically a bad thing for people. Actually, my personal favourite thing to see in polls is people being asked about climate change. Because it's, it's just 23% are very concerned that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has warned that Ireland is not on track to meet its climate change targets by 2030. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the, the 23% of the people out there who spend every day checking the website of the Environmental Protection Agency to see where they are. Yeah, I mean, there's also some stuff that seems fairly obvious, but I don't think is actually being shown before. So they're talking about how in a recent poll, they asked why people intended to vote for Sinn Féin. Change was overwhelmingly the response. To me, is actually interesting because that is a, that's a real problem. In a sense, if there was a specific or, or a series of specific policy reasons, or historical reasons that you could, you could address that. How do you address change? If people, if people are saying to you, if, if the people are saying to you, we just want change, how do you how do you respond to that? How do you defend yourself against that? If people are saying, I'm fed up of looking at you, I am sick and tired of your face, I don't like you, go away. It's very hard for you to come back. But yes, but I have this lovely policy here all about uh, bicycle lanes in Cork. Isn't that nice? Look at that. No. Go away, I'm sick of looking at you. Go away. That's a hard one. It's a very hard problem for a, for a political party or for a politician if the reason that they don't, people don't want to vote for them is because they're sick of them. Well, I suppose if you are in Fine Gael, you will hope that 
changing Martin out for Leo will do that. Although I would imagine at this point, if you're in Fine Gael, the real question is, are we becoming more unpopular the longer we stay in government? And if we are, when should we stop? And if you're in Fianna Fáil, you say, well, if they're sick of us, are they sick of us or are they sick of Michal Martin? And if we change the face and put a face up there that they've never seen before, or they don't recognise, maybe that will help us. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that'll help them a whole lot. It might help them a little bit. I mean, if they change the face and they change the music in a significant and obvious way and said, okay, we're going to rediscover ourselves. We're going to revamp and rethink and speak to the needs of Offaly and Westmeath, North Donegal, something to it. Maybe. I don't know. But I think that when they're when the people are simply saying, no, no, we're sick of you, go away. I don't like your face. I'm just sick of your face. And let's face it, Michael Martin's face has been around a long time now. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, as leader of the Fianna Fáil, he's there about 10 years more. But he, as, uh, I mean, he's been, he was, jeez, Michal. When did Michal get into the cabinet? In the 90s? Late 90s? Are you interested to know uh, what the Irish public think Ukraine should do in relation to the war in Russia? I am fascinated to know what the Irish public think. Uh, 48% of people say Ukraine should negotiate an immediate truce with Russia, which is not the impression you would have gotten from the media coverage of the affair. No. I also wonder if that's one of those issues that you can... The the way you frame the question could have a very significant outcome on the answer that you get. For example, I don't, I'm speculating here, Gary. I don't know. The answer might be exactly the same. If you were to ask them, should the Ukrainians accept that they have lost a, a quarter of their territory to Russia and make peace on that basis, would you get the same result? Maybe you would, or maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But I do think that probably the way you, the, the kind of question you ask in a situation like that is going to change the emotional response of the, 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 the person being polled. I, we talked about this before, and I said to, I said to you, I think, I think you probably agreed, that, it, that while at the beginning there was a strong sense that there was a good guy and a bad guy, and that would drive sentiment for a certain amount of time. That if you do get into the middle of a winter and it's a bad winter and the lights start to flicker and the price of coal goes up to 50 quid for a bag and a can of gas is 40 quid and there's a food inflation is running at 20%. And people make the association rightly or wrongly because, by the way, there, I don't know if there's necessarily a straight line connection with these with this kind of price inflation or inflation generally and the war in Ukraine. And they make the connection and say, well, you know what? While I have a lot of sympathy for the Ukrainians, you know, it's tough on them. I don't want to be paying this kind of money for heating and food. So I think the time for us to support the Ukrainians with stuff, no, not the Irish are doing it, but say the European, the European Union or sort of the West generally is helping out that, you know, it's time for them to bite the bullet and accept that we want our lives back and stop helping them out. I mean, there was also a question that we brought up after the war broke out when there was all the talk about how much uh, Europe and America should get involved. I I think the point we were discussing was this. If the war can, if the Russians can ultimately be resisted or pushed back or limited, that's one thing. But if they can't, and all that supplying weapons and allowing the war effectively to continue, which is what we are doing um, by supplying arms, if 
that can't be stopped and there we think that there will be just a victory eventually for the russians by extending the war you're really just increasing the casualties yeah and in in a funny in a, in a roundabout way what you're addressing there is one of the central points of what would have been the old thanistic uh, just war theory mm. and one of the one of the elements of just aquinas's just war was that a, 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 for a war to be moral to be just you have to have a prospect of winning it. And if you don't have a prospect of winning a war, you should engage in that. The problem with that question, Gary, is that that's just how, how long is a piece of string. And a reasonable, while the question is very reasonable, it's also the, the reasonable answer might be, you know what, there is an opportunity to actually to defeat the Russians. But we're not going to defeat the Russians by piecemeal help to the Ukraine. If we want to, that the opportunity is now, and what we actually have to do is massively ramp up our levels of help, military help, to the Ukraine uh, in this period when the Russians seem to be severely damaged and have su they're suffering severe troop attrition and they can't replace their their very their high level tech and they're they're going back to using stuff from the fifties and sixties because they've run out of the, the good stuff. That could be the the argument actually not that we should, we need to pull back but rather we need to ramp up. But that the middle way of sort of a trickle, trickle, trickle approach is the wrong way. Either go, what is it? Go on or go home? What is it? Go in or go home? That go phrase. hard or go home? Go hard or go home. Maybe, maybe that's the question here. Do we go hard or do we go home? Well, I think part of the part of the issue here in this discussion is that if you bring up that point, there is a reflexive sort of, so you're supporting the Russians. Whereas that's not the point here. As you said, Michael, you can take that argument and go, okay, well, that actually means we should put more in. I think the the only point I would make here is that you should be aware of the consequences of your actions. And just because you think you are doing a good thing doesn't mean it'll be you know, good for the people on the ground. Which, again, is not to say that Ukraine should go to the negotiating table. It's just to point out that this is messy. And there are differences also between what the Ukrainians want and what, they, what the, you could say the Ukrainians are morally allowed to do, what we might be. The Ukrainians might perceive this, and I think they're probably right, as being an existential war. If they lose, there will not be a Ukraine. And therefore, that changes the character of, the, of this conflict for them. If Russia loses, there will be a Russia. This is not an existential war for Russia. For the Ukrainians, it, it most likely is. But on the other hand, for us, that we're also we're talking, as you always are in these situations, about trying to predict what happens in the future. What is the what 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 are the outcomes going to be if we end up saying, okay, let's let's call it a draw and leave? How does that affect the Russians' attitude to future adventures in other areas? We don't know. Um, we can speculate. We can have opinions. But we can't have certainty. I mean, I, I suppose my, I think the concern I was bringing up initially when we were discussing this is that people are kind of magpies. And so if you're doing something like this based on public outcry rather than an actual analysis of the situation, what exactly are you going to do when people move on to something else? Absolutely. Yeah. Abs yeah. Yeah. You have to do this for a reason. You have to, you have to have a, a worked out strategic geopolitical reason or a moral reason but if it's a moral reason then stick to that and don't respond when the fickle winds of public opinion change and if the if if those wind if those opinions change to such a degree that they end up changing the government 
Well, then that's what happens. But if he's the before we close, I mean, there was skirting around there. I mean, there was the, the issue that, that came up and has been exercising a lot of our friends. The letter that was written by the the first lady, we didn't know we had a first lady until this letter was written. It was we have a first lady, and she wrote a letter to the Irish Times, which was published on the presidential website. The reason it was published, Gary, you may have missed this because you're in the United States, was because people couldn't read it on the Irish Times. Yes, I, I heard that. I, I didn't quite hear an explanation of why someone would be able to access the online uh, database or website of the president, but not the letter page of the Irish Times. Is the letter page of the Irish Times behind a paywall, perhaps? I don't believe it is. I don't think that, as some of our friends seem to think, it is a great constitutional crisis. I think it's just yet another one of a series of incidents of this, the way this presidency has been treated by this president, uh, and which is unfortunate. The, the, the thing that annoys me, and that, that really that's what it is, Gary, the framing of this discussion, I, was mentioned, I said this to you earlier, this, the, the, the First Lady, Sabrina Higgins, is described as an anti-war activist, Gary. Now, activist, I have to admit, is a word which brings me out in hives, attached to almost anything. But the anti-war, and now we know, Gary, that othering is very bad because we are told, and people like Michael D. and Sabrina will tell us, othering is bad. But it seems to me that use of that phrase, anti-war, is an absolute example of rhetorical othering. Because I'm anti-war, therefore you must be pro-war. If you disagree with me, you must be pro-war. You're a bad, bad person. Why are you pro-war, Gary? Why don't you want to think? Don't think. Don't you want to think of the children? Well, I, I will freely admit I am not uh, the most up to date with uh, this woman's activism. Oh yeah. Oh, she'd been stopping wars all over the globe for years, Gary. No, oh, that's good to hear. It's good to hear uh, because I was concerned there, Michael, that when you mean that they're really someone who occasionally says that war is bad and writes letters to the Irish Times to say it. She's not. She's unafraid of that. She will write letters to Irish Times to say, "I think war is bad, and I don't care who knows it," because she has that kind of courage, Gary, and that's the kind of courage you don't often meet in people who are in public life. Well, I think we can leave it at that, Michael, and we will be back uh, next Sunday. Yep. Yeah. And uh, until then, mind yourselves. All the best.